Well, please uh, yeah, take a seat and uh, find uh, Numbers 11, which is page 147 uh, of the Bibles. We're, we're into uh, week two of this three-week series looking at the, the power of grumbling. We saw that uh, last week, the power of grumbling, and this week and next we explore together how it is that we can overcome the power of grumbling uh, in our lives, and we're going to look at Numbers 11 uh, to do that. Now I love photos, absolutely love photos and in the era of digital uh, photography our, our uh, number of photos at home seems to be growing exponentially. Uh, you never seem to delete any, you just amass piles of photos uh, on, on the hard drive. And uh, w- one of the things I love about photos is how each time you look at them they evoke memories, uh, moments of, of times past, of, of uh, events or uh, people or uh, places and by far my favourite sort of photos are candid ones. Uh, nothing contrived, not uh, the Sunday best or Sunday smiles, but just normal life uh, in living colour or sepia if you're going to get creative. A photo, uh, whatever it might be, whether it's capturing uh, a child at play, utterly oblivious uh, of the camera, or a friend uh, mid-laughed, all inhibitions down, Let me ask you this, if we were to take a snapshot of your life, uh, 2010, what would we capture? And we're talking about a a candid shot here, you'd have no time to prepare, no time to uh, summon up the Sunday smile, uh, just a normal moment in your journey in life, a candid moment, what would we capture April 2010? Well today uh, as we look at Numbers 11 together, uh, we come across a snapshot just like that, uh, a moment captured for us in the journey that God's people were taking. Uh, They'd uh, left Egypt, rescued uh, from Egypt by their God and now wandering through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And standing there in the desert in Numbers 11, as they look back over the journey that they've had so far and they look around at their present circumstances and squint hazily into the distance, the camera clicks. And what's wonderful is this scene captured for us in Numbers 11 allows us not only to see that moment but to hear the soundtrack. And last week we began to hear the sounds. Do you remember them? Verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships. Verse 4. Again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Verse 10. The people of every family were wailing at the entrance to their tents. Turn up the volume of this moment in the life of God's people and what you hear is disquiet, grumbling, craving for more. Let me ask you, this snapshot we're about to take of your life as a Christian 2010, what would it capture? Would it capture a satisfied person? Are the sounds that we'd hear the noises of contentment? Would we hear the sounds of a joyful person, someone uh, who is happy and has been happy for some time. Is that what we capture? Or would the sounds be more in tune uh, with Numbers 11? Uh, As we put our ear to the photo of your life, April 2010, are the murmurs those that come from a grumbling heart, a dissatisfied heart? What is the soundtrack of your life right now? I suspect for for most of us, myself included, all too often if the camera clicked it would catch us in a moment of grumbling. 
But you wouldn't be alone, would you? Uh, such is the prevalence of grumbling that I suspect if, if the candid camera did take that shot and we were caught in a moment of grumbling, part of us would be thinking, phew, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, what if the camera had caught me in a moment of idolatry, uh, chasing after something other than God? What, what, if, what if that had been the moment? Or what if the camera had caught me in a moment of sexual immorality? How destructive would that be? But grumbling? Everyone does it. That's not so bad, is it? Well, no, says the scriptures. Did you hear 1 Corinthians 10? Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. Don't commit a sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. And then this. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by a destroying angel. 1 Corinthians 10 says that alongside the most obvious dangers in the Christian life are idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling is one of the most powerful destabilisers there is. If you think you're standing strong as a Christian, one of the things that can knock you over most easily is grumbling. And so let us again take seriously this candid moment captured for us in Numbers 11 because I suspect that as we look at this photo we're going to see more of a mirror than a photo. And last week, as we began to look at this chapter, we saw, as I said earlier, the power of grumbling up close. And for these next two weeks, I want us to see how we can overcome that. And we start that with part one today. Part one, getting rid of grumbling, is about resetting your vision. If you or I are guilty of the sin of grumbling, it comes from the fact we have a completely flawed view of our situation. A view where we think far too highly of our past, far too little of our present and, well, not at all of our future. If we are to avoid the sin of grumbling, it's going to begin by resetting that view. So let's start with the past. What would it mean to see your past clearly? As we begin to explore that, let me ask you this question. Is your life with Jesus much different to life without him? If there was a moment in your life where you came to Jesus, where you came to him as your Lord and Saviour, is is life different now to what it was like before that moment? Well, for those of us blessed with the experience of living with Jesus since childhood, as you look around at those close to you, perhaps those who are living without Jesus, is your life much different? I suspect most of us would say, uh, yes, of course it's different. It's different in many ways. many ways it's better. But I also suspect as we look back or around to life without Jesus, uh, it's not without redeeming features, is it? Well, that was Israel's view too. Do you see it in the snapshot, verse 5? God's special people living with their God uh, on the way to the promised land. Do you see their view of the past, verse 5? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlics. How good was Egypt? Remember the fish, free fish, how good is that? And the cucumbers, juicy cucumbers. But verse 5 is a colossal misreading of the past. So enthused are they by the memory of free cucumbers that they've forgotten that was the only thing free about Egypt. Now sweep away the fog of this sort of veggie fueled delusion and you see the reality of their past. Passage after passage in the Old Testament makes it clear two things. First, they were slaves ruled by a cruel dictator. That's who they were. Abject slaves under the pharaoh of Egypt. 
Every thought, every action, every step they took was marched to his drum. And their lives as slaves in Egypt were marked by futile, exhausting labour. They were given the job of making bricks and then what Pharaoh would do is he would take away the straw that they needed for the bricks and still demand it of them. And every time they managed to meet his demands, he would just up the game a little. They were slaves ruled by a cruel power. And secondly, they were like dead men walking. Exodus 5 says this, that they were driven by slave drivers, pushed on and on. And where were they heading? Get to the end of Exodus 5 and this is what you're told. Every step was a step towards a ruler with a sword in his arm ready to swing. Could there be a worse misreading of the past? Slaves on death row. And looking back, they thought, well, there were positives, weren't there? Now, I don't know about you, but one of, one of the fascinating things that uh, is said about uh, those on death row, it seems to get a lot of airplay, is the idea that if you are in that situation, your last meal is your choice. You can have whatever you want. And uh, I've got to admit, uh, over the years, I've started to think about if I was in that situation, what I would eat. And uh, it's a fairly boring meal, but uh, it's mine. Uh, bangers and mash, it would start with. Uh, topped off with uh, a family-sized pavlova and washed down with uh, a strawberry milkshake. Uh, so that's, that's my plan. But let me tell you, if you are on death row and you get to that point and you get the meal that you've always wanted, how bizarre it would be to think, what a day, this is the best day of my life, finally this meal. Are you kidding? Take the last bite and all that waits is a guard that stands and yells, dead man walking. And you stare down the corridor at the path ahead and there at the end is your judge with a sword. And you're saying, hey, but at least I've got a cucumber. They'd forgotten. But the Lord remembered. He'd been there in the past with them. He'd heard their cries and he'd acted. This is what the Lord says of their past in Deuteronomy 5. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty outstretched arm. That's what it took. Remember that, says God. It took my mighty outstretched arm to rescue you. Nothing else would free you from that cruel power. So let me ask you again, do you think life with Jesus is much different to life without him? I mean, life without him does have blessings, doesn't it? And it's not just food, family, friends, the blessing of today. You don't have to be with Jesus to enjoy those things. I lived 12 years without Jesus and I love those years. But Christian, if you view your past or look around and see life without Jesus with fondness or even a hint of jealousy... You're not looking properly. Have you forgotten who you were? Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead. Dead in your sins. Dead in the way you used to live, uh, following the ways of this world and the ruler of this world. As for you, you were dead. The Bible's assessment of life without Jesus is a dead man walking. Without Jesus, you are a slave ruled by a cruel power, ruled by your own sin. A a declaration of independence from God, that's what sin is. And and every step is not a step of self-determination, but self-destruction. And without him, you are ruled by this world and the ruler of this world, Satan. And he is not your friend. He's a slave driver. 
You see, when God looks at our past, when he looks at life without Jesus, he sees that our freedom, our choices, our sex, our materialism, our self-rule, our tolerance, our indifference, trapped. Christian, remember who you were. You were a slave ruled by a cruel power and where were you walking? Not to life. Show me a, a man or a woman without Jesus who is walking towards life. They don't exist. And here's the thing. Now, we look at verse 5 at Israel's misreading of their past and we think that is ridiculous. Uh, what sort of person on death row thinks it's okay I have a cucumber? But Christian, your past was no different. You had no more effective defence than a cucumber, be it your career, your family, your friends, your love. None of it is going to fly when you are a dead man walking. But while we forget our past, he remembers. He was there and he acted. It took a mighty outstretched arm to rescue you. It took the mighty outstretched arm of your Lord on his cross Ephesians says of your past, as for you, you were dead, but as for God, who loves you, whose mercy is so very rich, as for him, he made you alive again, even when you were dead. And so as to the question of, is life different now that you are with him than before, it's as different as freedom is to slavery. It's as different as life is to death. No, I reckon if you want to be free from grumbling, if you want to be a thankful Christian, stop here a while in your past. Linger at the foot of the cross. See his outstretched arm. And I suspect if you do, you'll forget what you were grumbling about. See your past clearly. And secondly, see your present clearly. And I reckon for me, this is the biggest challenge. I can see how I can fix my eyes on the concrete, once for all reality of the cross. That's easy. But the present, it's, it's harder to pin down, isn't it? Uh, when it comes to grumbling, there's a hundred ways I can spin my, my present situation and all of them come back to this, I'm getting a rough deal. That's what we see in the mirror of Numbers 11 uh, when they view their present. you see it there, verse 6? But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Boring manna every day. It's hard... It, tempting to agree with them, isn't it? You can imagine it. You think, what's for dinner? Manna. Uh, what are we planning to have for breakfast tomorrow? Well, manna. And uh, that, that'll be on the menu for some time to come. But I reckon the narrator helps us to see there's something more to it than that. Firstly, verse 7, we're told that manna, it wasn't unattractive. I've got to admit, when I see verse 6, I imagine porridge. That's what I imagine. Boring porridge every day, but we're told it was precious and beautiful. Verse 7, it was like resin, one of the things that was found near the Garden of Eden. Beautiful to look at. Verse 8, we're told it wasn't boring either. There were all sorts of different ways it could be used and cooked and eaten. And also, verse 8, it wasn't tasteless. Literally, it says it was like pastry cooked with the finest oils. They were eating Krispy Kreme donuts every day. (laughs) Manna from heaven. Food fit for angels, generous, tasty, diverse provision from their God. And it wasn't just food either. In Deuteronomy 29, uh, he says this of those years, During those 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes didn't wear out, nor did your sandals. Every need provided. And not just physical needs either. The Lord knew that they needed his word as much as they needed food. 
He gave them Moses, who time and time again led them by speaking that word to them. And even in our chapter, in verses 11 to 15, when that job becomes too much for Moses, God provides another 70 people to do that for them. And perhaps most wonderfully, the Lord provided their greatest need, his presence. He was there in the cloud by day and a fire at night. Every step they took, he took with them. Exodus 19 says, I carried you on eagle's wings. And I reckon here for me is why grumbling is so serious. Look again at the grumbling all throughout this chapter. Have a look at verse 1. The people complained about their hardships, do you see, in the hearing of the Lord. Verse 18, the Lord heard you when you wailed. Verse 20, you have rejected the Lord who is among you. Who's there as they grumble? Verse 20 drives it home, he's there. The Lord is present and that is what angers him so much. Yes, there is the offence of rejecting the provision of food, but it's not like the Lord here in this chapter is some petulant chef who provides a meal and is angry that the customers don't like it. No, the great offence is this. In this moment, as they moaned, their God was with them. The Lord was there, who was everything that they will ever need, their portion and their great reward. Even if the manna had vanished, even if their sandals had worn out, their cup would still overflow. Now listen to these words from Psalm 73. These are the words of someone who sees their present clearly. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord is enough. And so as he stands there with them in the desert, offering all sorts of provision and even offering himself, to grumble at such an offering is breathtaking. And I reckon this has confronted me a lot this week. If I grumble in my present circumstances, it's me saying this, the Lord is not enough. And I say that as he stands with me. Could I get more offensive? I don't know about you, but I I do most of my grumbling in private. I reckon I, in fact, do most of my grumbling in the kitchen. It's my designated grumbling room. I think you could almost uh, rename it just on the door there, the grumbling zone. Uh, That's where I do my grumbling. And I reckon I do my grumbling there because I think I'm alone, uh, out of sight, out of earshot. No one hears what spills out out of my heart in the kitchen other than Liz and she's seen the worst of it anyway. But he's there. Verse 20, I I wail before him. He's not left the room. He's not knocked off for the day. Uh, He never slumbers or sleeps. He's always at work for my good. And so as I complain in his presence, in the context of his provision for that day, I, I grumble, what's with that? I'll tell you what's with that. That's me saying in his presence, you know what, Lord, I think you've got this day wrong. I'm going to give you about a five out of ten for this day's performance. Perhaps you could lift your game tomorrow. Can do better, God. Or even more seriously, it's me saying, God, you are not enough. I need more. Now, is that not the same as Israel here in Numbers 11? And if I'm not the only one here seeing himself in the mirror, and I'm guessing I'm not, then we need to get to work resetting our vision of the present. And to this end, uh, let me suggest uh, as you approach the coming week to have this refrain in your head and your heart. It's one of the most constant uh, throughout the Psalms. It's simple, it is this. The Lord is kind and good. The Lord is kind and good. 
Now, I'm not suggesting you use it as some sort of mantra. When you get up in the morning, just keep repeating it until you feel positive vibes flowing. I'm suggesting that you use that truth as the lens to view life through. Your God is kind and good to you. That's who he is, always. Look for that. Expect that. Make that your task this week, looking for and rejoicing in God's kind goodness towards you and those around you. And here's the thing, I've actually tested it out this week and it works. The the kindness of his provision is everywhere. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Just this Tuesday, Tuesday was a a hard day uh, for us as a family and there on Tuesday morning the, the doorbell rings and there's someone with a meal, unexpected, perfect timing. Then there was an unexpected email of encouragement at a point in the week where I was flagging. And then there was a week of sunshine. A week of sunshine. (laughs) Unbelievable. Now, of course, I I could tell you that uh, during this week my printer broke down just as I was late for a meeting where I was supposed to give the talk that was wedged inside my printer. I could tell you how I missed a delivery that I've been waiting for for weeks. I could tell you how my car bill was uh, unexpectedly high. I, I could tell you that my daughter Evie still wakes up at a time that no human should get up. But that's only part of the picture. Because I could tell you on Thursday night as I struggle to park in my own street, Silver Birch Avenue, and I'm looking around going, why are there so many cars here? And I see through the window across from my house my brothers and sisters from this church meeting in a small group. It stops you grumbling. I could tell you of a meeting I was running late for on Friday uh, and it turned out to be a couple who have come to the Lord in the last 18 months and now want to baptise their daughter because as for them and their house, they will serve the Lord. I could tell you of another couple whose five-year-old prayed that Jesus be her Lord just this week. I could tell you of a man I met who has been struggling with a persistent sin but has been free for months now and that brings me joy and him, no doubt. Reset your vision of the present. The Lord is good And he's near. And finally this, see your future clearly. Let me ask you, do you think much about heaven? Uh, Is it a topic of conversation for you much? Is it on your agenda? Well, come to the mirror of Numbers 11 one more time. Uh, We've seen their past, verse 5, and even their present, verse 6. What are their view of the future? Well, let's see that. Verse... um, verse, Hang on, I'll find it in a second. Verse, well, here's the shock. It's not even there. Uh, Here is a people who have been rescued mightily by their God, who have been told that they are going to a land flowing with milk and honey and they will be his people, he will be their God and they will bless the nations from that place. All of that is there and it's not even mentioned, not even on their horizon. Gone. As we battle to overcome grumbling, here's another key. You cannot hope to stop grumbling if you cannot see your future. It's right to rejoice in your rescue from the past. It's right to look for God's provision in the present and there'll be plenty of it. But what if your present is worse than your past in many real and difficult ways? What if God's present provision is a bitter pill to swallow? What then? And I've got good friends, uh, old friends, uh, some of the oldest and best friends I have in the world, struggling to have children. Uh, Medically, it seems impossible. Every test that's done is worse news. They'd love to be parents. They'd be brilliant at it. I know families here who have suffered loss after great loss after great loss. There will be some here facing all enormous pressure 
health-wise or work-wise, family, whatever it may be, what if the past was actually better? Is the Christian meant to be some sort of kind of naive fool who, who lives in the desert and says, it's great? What if it's not? Now, sometimes this present life, life this side of heaven, creaks and groans in ways that makes it very hard to stop grumbling. And if this desert life is all there is, then grumble away. Who'd blame you? But if, like Israel, there is a hope, a promise given by a God who keeps his promises, if the God who saved you from your past, who carries you through the present, if he is strong enough with his outstretched arm to carry you all the way back to his land, then as you feel that grumbling, that craving welling up in your heart, as justified as it may feel, remember this. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart comprehended what God has prepared for you. Remember that there is a land beyond this desert. There is a place and God doesn't want it to be on your horizon. He wants it to fill your horizon. He says, don't crave the past. There's nothing there for you but death and slavery. Crave what I've promised. Crave home. Fix your eyes there. They were heading for the promised land. You're heading for an even better one, a new creation. And remember where you are now. This is the desert. Don't expect all this desert life to be one long, pleasant experience, safe, comfortable, easy, healthy, plentiful. Don't even expect that's ideal for you. But do expect that throughout whatever life throws your way, God's kind presence and provision will be there. That his grace is sufficient. That he will lead you home as he has promised. And remember that your present difficulties will make that final rest all the more sweet. That your light and momentary troubles are achieving for you an eternal glory of much, much greater weight. Let's pray.